0: Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network has incredible podcasts for you to check out, like Remarkable People, hosted by Guy Kawasaki. Of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. The Remarkable People podcast with Guy Kawasaki helps you better understand the changing world with interviews from thought leaders, legends and iconoclast if you are interested in business leadership entrepreneurship He interviews the best of the best, leveraging connections that he's built over his career. Here's some of the episodes and interviews that he's done. He's spoken to Seth Godin, marketing god, blogger, author. He's spoken to Pat Flynn, entrepreneur, power podcaster, and popular YouTuber. He's spoken to Jen Lim, happiness evangelist and author of Beyond Happiness. He's spoken to Steve Blank author, entrepreneur, and startup whisperer. If you want to listen to incredibly intelligent conversations with some of the most remarkable people on the planet, Listen to Remarkable People podcast by Guy Kawasaki wherever you get your podcasts. Today, my guest is Rand Fishkin. Now, Rand is probably most well-known for being the founder CEO of Moz. He grew that to over 130 employees, $30 million in revenue. Uh, Traffic at its peak was over 30 million visitors per year. He raised two rounds of funding, led three acquisitions and a rebrand, after Moz, he built inbound.org alongside Darmesh Shah. That site was sold to HubSpot in 2014. After Inbound, he founded Spark Toro. Um, obviously, He's had a string of successful entrepreneurial ventures uh, outside of building companies. He published the book, Lost and Founder, a painfully honest field guide to the startup world. He had co-contributed to two books, The Art of SEO and Inbound Marketing and SEO. He's been profiled in Seattle Times. He has been uh, named 40 under 40, named Business Week's 30 under 30. He's been written about in Newsweek, The Next Web, Inc. 500 and hundreds of other publications so he has been around the block in terms of marketing entrepreneurship Uh, obviously his background was building marketing tools but now he works with entrepreneurs as an advisor as an investor so let's uh, let me just go through some of the things we spoke about so firstly we spoke about some marketing topics and very tactical marketing things you can't uh, bring Rand Fishkin on a podcast and not speak marketing. Uh, we spoke about some of the strategies that he used at Spark Toro, his most recent venture on how to grow it. Um, and some of these strategies that he's learned and implemented at SparkToro obviously have come from his success at Moz and at Inbound. Um, we also spoke about some startup and entrepreneurship and startup culture things. So how to build a more equitable startup culture why is that important? Why does startup culture suck now? And what can we do about it? Uh, we spoke about some tactical advice for entrepreneurs who were starting their own companies. Uh, we also spoke about venture capital. He pulled back the curtain on venture capital and exposed some things about the VC world that may not be all sunshine, unicorns, and rainbows. So how does some of the traditions that usually accompany VC and VC-backed companies potentially negatively impact the growth or the business that the entrepreneur is trying to build. So some great marketing lessons, growth lessons, entrepreneurship, VC startup lessons. Rand's done it all. So let's jump right into this. This is Rand Fishkin, serial entrepreneur, author, and investor.
1: Yeah, I dropped out of college in 2001 uh, my first job was actually working at the wizards of the coast game center i don't know if you remember the little pokemon cards
0: i 100 percent know what wizards of the coast is yeah there you go
1: so, so they yeah. they i think they made or they they resold on behalf of the japanese company that that makes pokemon cards they sold these distributed them throughout the united states but so they're based here in seattle and they had this they used to have this like big game center tournament center for Playing Pokemon and and Magic and all the other games that they make uh, in the university district, right right near where I went to college. And so I was working there over the summer, buying Pokemon cards with my employee discount, and then reselling them on eBay and Craigslist. And that is how uh, that is how I paid for my last year of school before I dropped out, two classes away from graduating.
0: So you're um, arbitraging Pokemon cards, in- and
1: <laughs> exactly, university. exactly. And you know, I I kind of had this like. Um affinity for just internet commerce in general and the idea of the web i I'd, I'd been doing web design since high school since my mom brought home a copy of Microsoft front page I think in ninety five or ninety six and I wanted to do that full time so you know basically got into got into web design was a failing web designer for years and years. Uh, my mom and i we're working together, but very unsuccessfully. We're you know spending way more than we were making, and we um, eventually pivoted the business to SEO. Not not through any like genius discovery, but because our clients who needed SEO for their websites that we had designed and built, uh, we were subcontracting that work. We couldn't afford to pay our subcontractors anymore. Like we ran out of money to pay them, and so it was, hey, Rand, you have to do the work now. And so I started learning SEO and I started this blog called SEO Moz uh, around, you know, sharing what I was learning about SEO, mostly sharing my frustrations around trying to learn SEO. And then um, that website, probably about 18 to 24 months into me operating it, started to get some real traction and clients were coming to us, not for web design anymore, but for SEO. And so we, you know... um, Pivoted the business essentially entirely to that service model, uh, and at that point, things started growing. You know, I was getting invited to speak at conferences and events, and was building like a little bit of a you know tiny niche of a name for myself in in the SEO world, which was very small at the time. Um, people still thought SEO was mostly this black hat, manipulative, you know, spammy, scummy place. Um, and SEOmoz was trying trying to improve the reputation of SEO. And, and over time, I think that um, eventually worked. Uh, basically, what happened, uh, SEOmoz switched to a software business from consulting. I became the CEO. We raised some funding, uh, traditional venture funding, over a few rounds. I uh, got to about maybe $35, $40 million in revenue. Um, I stepped down as the CEO in... 2014 and promoted my longtime chief operating officer um, to the CEO role. And then I was with the company another uh, almost four years and then, then left in 2018. And the next day started SparkToro, which is in uh, audience research and, and, you know, very different sector, but still in marketing software. Um, in between those two companies, I wrote this book, Lost and Founder. Which a lot of people have read, and, and obviously, you know, you're uh, you're part of the world of, of HubSpot, right? So I um, I detailed in that book the offer that HubSpot made at one point along Moz's journey to buy the company and sort of all work together, and, and um, that I I turned that down, which was in retrospect a very very foolish mistake. Um, yeah, so that's, that's essentially my career. And these days, you know, I'm operating SparkToro. It's a super different company than Moz. It raise money in a different way. It is, um, run in a really different way. There's only three of us instead of 200 of us, um, at, at Moz, there's, uh, a very different philosophy around growth and around the marketing model, um, and how we attract and, and build our, uh, our customer audience and who we serve. But, it's, um, it's still marketing software and I, I like that world a lot, but I'm, um, yeah, I'm trying to, like we said in the preamble, Scott, I'm, uh, I'm trying to not stay in my lane.
0: So was that, was not staying in your lane and something that you incorporate into building of Spartoro doing things differently? I want to yeah. understand how you've built Sparktoro. I want to understand first of all the inspiration for Sparktoro, why you even decided to go into that lane, but uh, or that you know, build that build that company, but also your growth model. Walk me through some of the things that you're doing.
1: Okay, um, I'll try and answer the first question first, yes. and then the second okay. one second. Um, so why? Um, Sorry, why did we stay in our lane
0: or how did we not stay in our lane? How did you, what did you do differently? What did you do differently with SparkToro?
1: Yeah, um, (laughs) uh, the list is so long that we, uh, I would spend the rest of (laughs) this podcast explaining it to you. What are the the main ones? Yeah. Yeah, I'll pull out some some big picture ones. Uh, So SparkToro is um, built for profitable long-term survival, not growth at all costs, uh, high riskiness, so traditional venture startup model, right, which, which I'm sure you're familiar with, right? Um, you know, HubSpot was this model, Moz was this model, Hundred thousand other venture back startups are, are all this model, which is essentially uh, you raise money with the expectation that you will attempt to grow as fast as you possibly can, um, and that you will do so unprofitably. I think I think I saw from HubSpot's latest results, like they're they're a public company now, but they're still unprofitable, right? They lose money every quarter, every year. Um, but the idea is that their their growth rate means that investors are willing to fund that unprofitability with the hope that eventually. They will be like Amazon was after 19 or 20 years, right? Extremely profitable at some very, very large growth rate because they will be a monopoly player in their space and they'll you know, remove all competition. Um, and then they'll be able to charge higher prices and you know, essentially uh, corner the market. And that, that model has worked very well for investors because uh, the United States tax code rewards um, growth over profits because of capital gains. Right? So if you and I you know start a company and it grows a lot and we sell it, we pay zero dollars on the first ten million of you know uh, money that we make, and we pay eighteen percent, sixteen percent, whatever on the next you know ten to hundred million dollars of uh, um, of profit that or of of sale revenue that we get. But if instead, every year that company kicks off a million dollars to it and we run it for fifty years, we're paying 40% or whatever, you know, maximum high tax rate for ordinary income is. So, investors, right, wealthy investors, LPs, the, the limited partners that back venture, um, public market investors, hedge funds, all these people, they don't want profitability. They want growth because that's, you know, that's how you get capital gains tax rate. Um, and so, I, uh, You've probably seen that the Biden administration has proposed potentially uh, making the the capital gains tax rate the same as or, as income, which would be absolutely revolutionary to the world economy. It would be very strange. I don't I don't think we understand at all what everything that would happen. I think it's a great idea, but I know lots of people don't like it. Um, but so in that in that model, right, essentially. Um, your job as a startup, right? If you and I invest in a startup, what we want them to do is to try to become a unicorn or, or, or die somewhere on the way there. And both of those outcomes are fine. What's not really fine with us if, is if you get to you know, a few hundred thousand or a few million in revenue, and you're sort of happy and content, and you have a profitable business, and your customers like you and your product, and your employees and team are happy, and you're happy, but you're not growing, or you're not growing very fast, um, and you're not also dying and going away and getting off our our uh, you know our reports. Both of those outcomes um, are fine. The middle one, the the sort of happy long term profitable growth, not good. It's not good for our model. It doesn't fit in there. There's no place for it, and I, that that is the biggest thing that SparkToro rejects. Right. The biggest thing that we reject is the idea that you have to be, you know, grow at, grow as fast as you possibly can at all costs uh, or die trying. Di- I say die. Death of company. Right. Bankruptcy. Yes. Or <laughs> not 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 tale. literally yeah, no but, human beings. Right. Yeah. Um, but this um, that model, I think, is um, only good for uh, a portfolio theory. Right. So essentially, if you and I own 100 companies like this, eh, we probably don't want to do very well. If we own 500 companies like this, we'll, we'll start to right the, the averages. The portfolio theory of it says there'll be two to three huge winners in that group of 500. You know, there'll be 480 complete failures. Um, but those those two to three winners will make up for it. And, and then there'll be maybe 10 or 15 that do pretty well right and so those two or three whatever the the airbnb and the uber will make up for you know all the all the other else yeah yeah everything else and that portfolio theory works great for investors and works terribly for entrepreneurs because if you and i start a company and we're told hey you got a like three and five hundred chance of making it you're like well what company (laughs) what, what happens in the other cases well in 485 of those cases things are going to go pretty bad for you. Like you're going to be real sad. You're not going to make as much money as you would have if you just gotten a regular job. Um, It's going to be a uh, stressful, very emotionally turmoil filled adventure. And your employees are going to be very unhappy and your customers are going to be very unhappy. Your investors are going to be unhappy with you, but it's fine. You go away and die and be the failure because you'll, help us find who the few winners are. I think that model sucks terribly.
0: (laughs) I want, I I have all sorts of swear words I want to use about that model. You you can swear as much as you want, but I I think that, I think the point is that nobody entrepreneurs, this idea, there's a lot of ideas around entrepreneurship that I don't think are, are discussed that much. And even when we were doing the preamble, it was like, okay, do you want to talk about marketing or you want to talk about, all the other things that have to do with entrepreneurship. I get a lot of people talk about marketing. I'm sure you have some great ideas about marketing. My God, like we know, we know the past, we know the history. You're in this space. You've been living in this space. But I think that the the, the ideas that you champion around um, around entrepreneurship are very important because it paints a very uh, pragmatic picture for people that want to start something and potentially are just just looking to go find VC money and think that that's the only path that they can take, which it's not it's, it's
1: yeah well and even for people i one of the my big frustrations, scott is that even for people who don't raise venture they build their companies in the media ecosystem and the echo chamber that is dominated by venture right and so even if you are a startup that is you know an agency for example a consulting business um the The concepts of blitz scaling and hyper growth and growth hacking and you know um, maximizing growth rate uh, of hustle culture, all of these things are weighing down on you regardless of whether you are actually you know in that in that funded structure. so mm-hmm. I, I think this is this is one of my big challenges, right? is that um, even though Many venture capitalists would say, and they do say this all the time, right? They say VC is wrong for ninety-nine percent of companies, and if you're a tech entrepreneur, it is marketed to hundred percent of us, right? It's the it's the ocean that we're swimming in. So I um I think it's really really wise to understand why does that asset class exist, how does it function. What's the goal behind it, right? The goal behind it is to avoid taxes. Um, And the goal behind that is essentially maximize growth at the expense of long-term survivability. So, you know, if you look at the small business administration, right, in the U.S., which, which looks at tons of small businesses. So people with whatever, two to 100 employees. The average survival rate over five years is like, um, I think it's 55, 58%. It's down a little bit in the last few years because of COVID and stuff, but um, the average five-year survival rate for a venture-funded, as soon as you raise that first venture round or the the pre-seed or the seed round that would lead to a venture round, um, your five-year survival rate drops to like 15%. That's a lot worse than a restaurant right <laughs> yeah. so so it is it is a um it's a very strange um strange world if you are an entrepreneur and i i don't think it's talked about enough that um, that these these high failure rates exist there there's also the culture of you know i think the the whole ecosystem around it creates this idea that you know scott let's say you you start something tomorrow what what you're essentially told is hey, yes, there's a high failure rate, that's part of the game, but you are special. And if you are good enough, if you are a true champion, if you work hard enough, if you sacrifice enough of the rest of the things in your life, and you put your full energy and effort, and you devote everything to this venture, you may be able to prove yourself as one of the big success stories. Um, I hate that too. Like that does not work well with my mental model and how, how I want the world to be, right? I, I want a world of far more equity and far more distribution of opportunity rather than um, maximizing inequality by saying for every you know, 500 entrepreneurs, there will be two or three big winners and a few who do okay. And the vast majority will fail entirely. I think that's what we have in society, um, American society at least, overall right now. You know, if you look at the wealth distribution, income distribution, it's basically a tiny few massive winners, right? A few, you know, maybe another 10% who's doing pretty all right. And then kind of this, oh man, you do, you know, whereas when we were born, you know, maybe, I don't know how old you are, but 30, 40 years ago, you really didn't want to be in the bottom 40% of Americans. Now you really don't want to be in the bottom 70%. And it feels like we're going to a place where you wouldn't want to be in the bottom 90%, you know, in another 20 years. That, that's ugly. It's, it's that's tough. not the world I want to live in. That's not the it's world I want to create. It's an ugly version of
0: capitalism. It's an ugly version of capitalism. well. gap
1: Yeah. Yeah. Super ugly version. And look, I, you know, I think um, extremely highly of a lot of people who are, in that world, right? I have a bunch of investors who are venture back. Darmesh Shah, Darmesh, the co-founder of HubSpot. Yeah, he, he was he was the lead investor in SparkToro. He's been my friend for forever. I love that guy to pieces. I think he's a wonderful human being. I don't love the model of investing that he generally does and supports. Right, and he's had obviously an incredible success um, with HubSpot and 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 with venture backing. I know he thinks highly of um, HubSpot's venture investors from years ago, and he invests in a lot of startups that go on to raise money. Um, but I don't, I don't, I don't love it. Um, and I, I think, I think in order for us to change that, we have to have lots and lots of role models that are showing a different path and doing it well. And that's, yeah. that is the most fundamental thing that SparkToro is trying to be, is a role model for a different kind of path. So we are doing our marketing differently. We're doing our growth differently. We're doing hiring differently. We think about what we want the next quarter and the next year to be differently. We, technically, we are growing at a rate that a venture investor would be excited about. But we don't have to be. It's almost unintentional, right? It's sort of like, oh, well, look at this happy accident that is going along. You know, SparkToro is going quite well, especially at the moment. I'm sure we'll have some down months in the future. But um, yeah, that's not our goal is not hyper growth. My goal is to work. 30 or 35 hours in a week, right? I want French or Italian hours. I don't want American hours. Um, <laughs> 100%. Yeah. All
0: right. So you, let's break I mean, have you been down. to Italy? Like, of course. I know exactly what you're talking paradise. about. If I remember last time, last time I went to, um, I, I was, I was last, last European trip was Vienna, Austria. And, Ooh, and yeah. the, uh, I was on my phone on a Friday afternoon and everybody was looking at me like I had three heads. <laughs> like the fact that I was on my phone on a Friday afternoon, it was just a regular, it wasn't a holiday. It's like, what are you doing? Like, what what, what, are you, what are you working on? <laughs> it's like totally Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Get off your
1: phone. Look, look yeah. at the beautiful sunset. Look at this incredible plate of yeah. pasta before you. Let's go to a vineyard. Let's go drink. <laughs> Let's go eat. Let's Get an espresso. Get an aperitivo. Yeah. That's, so. I, I mean, I I don't think, I don't think that at the You know, at the end of my life, I'm going to look back and say, I wish I'd made more money. You know, (laughs) like, I just can't see it. I just cannot. I wish I, uh, I wish I'd grinded harder. I wish I'd hustled more. (laughs) Like, I don't, I don't think those are the things I'm going to be thinking
0: about. Um, I think it's weird that there, maybe there are people who will feel that way. I don't know. I don't think so I, well, I no. think that that's why you have to find a way. Okay, so let's let's break down. I want to break down some some tactical advice for entrepreneurs on yeah. on how they can build a company like Spark Toro, because that's everybody, true. like you said, is marketed and they're they're in this ocean of VC. investment, or if not VC. investment, then okay, I have to bootstrap, but there's not a lot of bootstrap success. There are some, but I mean, there's not a lot. So yeah, how, do you, yeah, yeah. And, how do you? do it? do? And these are not the only two options, right? There's a whole bunch of stuff in between that is
1: poorly understood. Um, yeah. and not well marketed and and not um it gets very little press gets very little media and and for obvious reasons right it 's just there 's not that much of it and also um it is rarely the case that those people have power influence, and wealth to impact media in the same in the same way right so uh so what i would what I would urge folks to think about is in the structure of your company, you can um, raise money from investors, private or crowdfunded in ways that let you build the kind of company that you want to build. And there are supportive groups of investors who are like like myself, right, who are looking for opportunities to fund um, companies that have a, hey, we're going to exist for a long time. Our first priority is sort of paying back our investors their initial sum. This is this is how the Sparktoral model works um we raised 1.3 million dollars from 35 36 angel investors they're mostly folks um uh gosh from my personal network over the years so you for our model you do need accredited investors but there are innovations on that model that'll let you crowdfund this this same sort of thing um you can look at what sawhill Langavia did um SHL on Twitter. And he, you know, he he basically built a fund structure that that's a little more crowdfundy style. But um those 36 investors put in between 25000 dollars and 100000 dollars each. Uh, and our goal at SparkToro is essentially to Become profitable, which which we have been for a while now, and then pay back that one point three million. At which point, everybody gets to participate pro rata, meaning to their amount of shares in profit sharing. So, if we make you know hundred thousand dollars in profit for ten years, uh, everybody, you know, all the investors get to split whatever it is thirty five percent of those profits, and founders get to and, and employees get to split the other part. Uh, Hopefully, right? Our, our hope is that SparkToro is a several million dollar a year business, maybe even a $10 million a year business, and that our profits are seven figures, right? And that we can pay out that money every year annually, and that compounded over time, SparkToro will actually be one of the best, maybe the best performing investment in our investors' portfolio. And the only downside, the only shitty thing for them, Ordinary income taxes, <laughs> right? They'll have to pay ordinary income taxes on the money that SparkToro makes them. But if you can find, you know, sort of um, tax progressive investors, right, who, who believe in this, that the one nice thing is if and when SparkToro ever does sell, right, if, it, if, it, if it's acquired by some other company in the future, good news on that money, our investors will
0: get capital gains. So, so so you set up multiple exit options, or no exit options or that are no still exit profitable. option. Yeah. Exactly. And what's, and
1: what's the goal? right? The incentive for us is essentially keep costs slow, get to profitability, maintain profitability for a very long time, keep our team happy, keep our customers very happy, invest in true, long-term thinking, right? 10, 20, 30-year thinking, because we don't have to worry about 18 months from now, we're going to run out of cash. How do we get our burn rate down far enough that we can survive or how do we raise our next round of funding? Because realistically, we have to raise our next round of funding. And that is virtually every startup I've ever been involved with is, our you know, we have this many months left of survival. Um, that, I, I find that model <laughs> incredibly tense and I don't think it um, predicts the best performance from you and your team. That, right, there are people who will say, Hey, it keeps the entrepreneur hungry, it keeps the team hungry. They know that they're out of a job, that they're screwed, that their life is, you know, doomed to be bad, right? That they're not gonna have health insurance and like
0: <laughs> they're
1: screwed <laughs> it's, it's, in life.
0: But if, if you don't. think about that, if you think about that, that's the way that the person that you're partnering with for your future is thinking right off the bat. You'd be like, I don't want this,
1: I don't wanna work with them. Yeah, you don't wanna work with someone who basically says, Hey, if you don't um, reach these milestones and, and get that hyper growth going real, real fast, um,
0: your life is going to be bad. And that's what I want for you. <laughs> yes, yeah, that's not fun. And that's why. And th- the biggest issue is that people don't realize that their version of entrepreneurship is, is not like that version of entrepreneurship is not what it has to be. And it's definitely not what they want until they've taken on that first round of funding. And now they're now they're stuck. They're stuck yeah. with these people. Yeah. That they can't get out. And that's the number one thing I tell people, like if they're looking to raise money, like you better be damn sure that the people you're getting into bed with are the people that you want to work with long-term. And I think that early on, they don't think, they don't think through and they just jump into whoever's going to give them an offer. And that's scary. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, ExpressVPN. Now I know most of you are probably thinking, why don't I just go incognito mode? Well, let me tell you something. Incognito mode does not hide your activity. It doesn't matter what mode you use or how many times you delete your browsing history. Your internet service provider can still see every single website you've ever visited. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without ExpressVPN. And it doesn't matter who your internet service provider is, ISPs in the US can legally sell your information to ad companies. So what is ExpressVPN? Well, ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your ISP can't see the sites you visit. ExpressVPN also keeps all your information secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. When I'm using ExpressVPN, I can't even tell that it's on. It runs seamlessly in the background and it is so easy to use. All you have to do is tap a button and you're protected. And what's great is it's available on all your devices. So your phone, your computer, even your smart TV. There's really no excuse for you not to be using it. So protect your online activity today with the VPN that was rated number one by Business Insider. Visit my exclusive link expressvpn.com slash success story and you can get three months free with a one year package. That's expressvpn.com slash success story, expressvpn.com slash success story to learn more. So I just wanna take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. Now with the holidays in full swing, We're that much closer to a new year, which means New Year's resolution. And we often focus on what we feel we failed at. Health, relationship, finances. But what if we tried something new this new year? And instead of acknowledging what we failed at, let's acknowledge what we did right. The things we want to continue doing more of. The relationships we want to show appreciation for. And what if we did that for our businesses? HubSpot is challenging businesses to focus on how to grow better, starting with our customers because the hubspot crm platform is dedicated to making the connection between you and your customers better than ever. How? Well, new tools like native payment links and recurring payments that directly embed in HubSpot's quoting tools and emails means seamless delivery and payment collection. And custom surveys easily capture feedback unique to your business. Share insights with your teams and help you understand what makes your customers tick. Learn more about how HubSpot's CRM platform can help build, maintain, and grow your customer relationships at hubspot.com.
1: It is it is really scary. I- I mean, I'll tell you honestly. I thought the world of Moz's investors. I still think that in the venture world, they are some of the best investors that you can find. Right? They, um, you know, they're very entrepreneur friendly. They leverage their networks on your behalf. They'll give you all the advice that they can. They'll take time for you on personal issues as well as professional ones. They're, you know, um, emotionally smart people. They 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 clearly cared about me as a human being, not just an entrepreneur it's not the individual right the person that that investor is not the problem when you meet with them they're going to be friendly they're going to care about you they are a real human being just like you the problem is the incentives the problem is the model don't i i i'm trying not to blame the individual people inside the model for the way that the model works right cuz it's not this investor screwed me it's this investor just could not, can't realistically break out of the incentive model that they are given and treat me differently from how their, you know, financial goals are designed, right? Because they have investors too. They have LPs. Those LPs expect the valuations on that, you know, sheet every, whatever it is, every year that the reporting is done by the venture firm. So it's the model, man.
0: Yeah. And I think that, um, the, the issue is further propagated by the fact that people that are these investors, they make their money from other investors that were part of this model and that's the model they know. And yeah. it's just, it's yeah. self-fulfilling prophecy, man. So, yeah, yeah. Okay, right. so that's, I, yeah, yeah. There's not a lot of innovation.
1: Almost no one is trying to break out of this field. We, Geraldine and I, my wife and I just had a meeting with, um, Janine Sickmeyer from, from Overlooked Ventures, right? And Overlooked is trying to do something really cool, very innovative for the venture space, which is essentially they, they exclusively black, uh, overlooked and underrepresented, underserved founders, right? So this is people, you know, women founders, um, black founders, native founders, right? That kind of stuff. Awesome, super cool mission. Frustrating part for us at least was like same model, same underlying structure and model, and I, you know, that's that's the part that I just can't get my can't get excited about. At least, so so th- to this, you know, the SparkToro model, we open sourced our funding documents so that you don't have to pay a lawyer, you know, a whole bunch of fees to sort of like recreate what we did. Um, those are available online. A few startups have already raised money using our uh, documents, and I encourage anyone who wants to, if you just search for SparkToro funding, you'll find the docs link too. Um, you can update them with whatever numbers you want, uh, and then we also uh, invested in a fund called Tiny Seed, which is backed by Rob Walling of of MicroConf um, out in Minneapolis. And uh, Tiny Seed uses SparkToro's funding structure for all of its investments, so it you know invests in a whole bunch of companies each quarter. And I, that 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 fund is doing very well, right? Like the crazy part is the survival rate is so high that and, and the the hyper growth of several of the companies does not appear to be negatively impacted. Right. It's not like, well, um, you know, by having a model where more people survive, fewer people grow fast. That does not appear to be the case. And th- this was my theory all along. Right. My theory is. You're not. Um, Everyone can win every. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> That's yeah. Maybe that should be the title of the next book. Everyone can win.
0: I like that. That's good. I like that a lot. Okay. Let's, 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 I want to, I want to pull out um, some differentiators in your marketing strategy uh, for SparkToro because you're doing that differently as well. So how are you marketing and growing the company? So we figured out the investment model. Now let's figure out the the marketing model.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um the interesting thing, right, about SparkToro is coming out of Moz, you, you would expect that like, well, Rand's really good at content and SEO. So he's going to create a bunch of content and it'll rank really well. And then people will come from Google search and they'll, they'll find SparkToro and they'll, they'll give it a try. And that is, uh, we get almost, SparkToro gets almost no search traffic. And nearly all of the search traffic that we do get is for, uh, one phrase or one keyword alone, SparkToro. <laughs> Almost everyone who who finds us uh, simply searches for our brand name. And that is um, very, very different than Moz, right? Of course, which was built on this engine of, you know, what, what maybe the inbound folks would, or sorry, the HubSpot folks would call the inbound marketing model, mm-hmm. right? Of like content and SEO and building a flywheel around that. That model works great. I'm not against that model. It's just not how we're doing things. And that is mostly because... SparkToro is not something anyone would know to search for. Um, so we, you know, we haven't talked about what SparkToro does specifically, but essentially, I mentioned it's audience research. It's it's essentially you you go to SparkToro and you search for a particular online audience. Like I want to know what um, chemical engineers in the UK. Uh, what podcasts they listen to, and what YouTube channels they subscribe to, and what social accounts they follow, and what websites they visit, right? And you can do this with with virtually any describable online audience. So it's not search data. It's essentially behavioral and demographic data that is uh, crawled from public, social, and web profiles. So SparkToro has this you know, um, idea of a forever free account, uh, different than Moz, which was a free trial model. You can just sign up, get forever free access every month, run a bunch of searches. Um, the that is the primary driver of growth for us. So essentially, people sign up, run free searches, have some good experience out of that, get some you know um, value, some real value from the free version, and then over the months and years ahead, they do two things: they share it with other people, and they're like, "Hey, boss, team, friend, you should see this." and secondarily they come back and try it again when they need more audience data Um, the the primary way we have let people know that we exist and and you know figured out that Sparktoro is a thing is experiences like this one (laughs) literally um we you know i do probably a few podcasts and webinars and shows and interviews and whatever live chats and social media discussions uh, every week and That is what's fueled SparkToro's brand awareness and growth over the last, what what have we been around for, 16 months, 17 months uh, that we've been live. And, you know, essentially today we've got about maybe 45,000 people using the free version um, and I think right around 900 paying subscribers. So, you know, it's a it's a very low cost product, obviously, um, I think it starts at 50 bucks a month is the lowest price plan. And then, you know, goes up to like 300 a month. So e- even at the top tier, it's less expensive than like the lowest priced HubSpot, whatever, or, you know, yeah. any, any sort of, um, enterprise marketing product. Uh, and that works great for us, right? We have a tiny team. We can afford to do that. Um, Amanda, our, our new, uh, marketing architect, Amanda, Amanda Natividad, she is, you know, helping put together like a a biweekly office hours event, right? That we, um, that we do, we do some, we're planning on having um, like a podcast or video cast um, in the near future, but I have blogged maybe 50 times in the company's existence, right? It's just a very, it's a very, very different model. It's essentially through influence marketing, right? Going out, finding sources of
0: influence, making some connection and and influence with like product-led marketing or product-led growth
1: yeah it's 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 that combination it's essentially product-led growth well it's influence that leads to a product that creates a loop of um engagement and recidivism and eventual conversion
0: and do you think that the reason why you're having such success um I, i one of the things that you have spoken about in the past is that there's a problem with mvp culture And I Mm -hmm. think that maybe by engineering a slightly better product, that's what's allowed you to use this viral loop of So walk me through walk me through uh walk me through quickly problem with MVP culture, lean startup, but then also, you know, we're we're going into everyone today. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But then what you did differently. So what was the first iteration of of SparToro? Ooh,
1: okay. Um let's see. So I'll I'll answer that and then we can talk about MVP culture. Okay. Um First iteration of SparkToro was essentially a, a super early alpha where I sent queries manually to Casey, my co-founder and, and um, you know, our CTO. He basically does all the, the technology uh, behind the scenes. And I was like, hey, Casey, can you tell me about you know whatever it is, architects in California? Casey would be like, okay, I'll query the database and then I'll send you some like, here's a dump of you know, basically what's, what's going on. And then that version was very tough for me to get my head around. Um, and so Casey built a very simplistic UI uh, that would let me essentially run my own queries against it. And that um, version existed about, I think, about six months after we got funding. So maybe the fall of 2018, January 2019, some, somewhere around there. And that alpha version was absolutely an MVP, right? It was. It did a, a similar thing to what SparkToro does today, right? So it was like the the early nascent version of it. But there's no way in hell I ever would have launched that publicly. Um, and that's that's kind of the difference, right? So I think that you know the Eric Reese lean startup model, which is which is sort of overtaking the startup world in terms of popularity. That model says, once you have a version like, like that version, that early version of a UI that you you know built, get it out there publicly, see if you can get traction, see if people will pay attention to it and use it and find it valuable um, before you go and do anything else with your company. And what did we do? Uh, we spent another year and a half and $400,000 of, you know, sort of our investors money uh iterating on that before we were willing to launch anything. And that is absolutely contrary to the MVP model, right? It's super against it. The the thing that I think is great about MVPs and I here's the in the case where I was a founder with no following, no traction in the marketing world, no way to get my message out um you know, I had no contacts or connections, virtually no network. I probably would have launched that version. I would have launched that super early UI because what do I have to lose? It's not like the ten people who are going to see it are going to be you know hugely impactful on the market. But when when Spark Toro did its finally did its launch. 25,000 plus marketers, including many of the most um, well-followed and influential people in that world, checked out SparkToro within the first two weeks of its launch. You you get one chance, one chance to show those people who and what you are. And if they already have an association with you, uh, you will not get a, a second chance to do that, right? So it'll basically be: Is Rand Fishkin's new thing good? Nope, it's a piece of crap. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think the MVP model works great if you have virtually no, you know, marketing impact at launch. And I think it works terribly if you have a substantial, you know, sort of um, audience that you're going to be launching to, because that first impression is hugely important.
0: Could an argument be made that even if you don't have a following, that that first impression is still important. And maybe instead of worrying about launching an MVP too early, you don't go all in on a startup, don't quit your job so you can support a more completed product.
1: Yeah, I, potentially. I Let's see. the The way that I like to have my cake and eat it too in this scenario is many alphas and betas with private groups of people who are invited to test something behind the scenes. And then once they are so crazy excited about it and they're obviously using it and that usage rate is high and they're coming back to the product again and again and you know they're telling their friends and asking if they can invite them, then you launch, right? And so then essentially you get the benefit of both things. You get, hey, yes, I have some people who are testing this and playing around with it and validating whether it's good or not and also i get the benefit of um when we finally do a public launch it's really exciting this is how a lot of classic industries work um uh, we have some friends who are in the theater world right and i i don't know if you're familiar with like how Broadway or
0: or local theater no, works, right? I, probably not. Like, probably. I I just watch it if if I get invited, but that's, that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so, so
1: they have this thing, right, where they basically do rehearsals, right? Obviously, you know, they're rehearsing the play or the musical or whatever. And then some people get invited to those. And then there'll be a thing called previews yeah. where, you know, if you're a member of the theater, you can like come and see things early. There's like y- yada, yada. And then... Then there's opening night, right? And opening night is when press and reviewers and people who are going to potentially amplify and decide whether the finished product is worthwhile, right? And that, that's when you stop sort of iterating generally on the play. That's, uh, that happens often, you know, uh, 10 to 30 performances after the the very first time you've performed it for a live audience. Pretty smart, right? Like you, you have an MVP model where you launch an MVP to a group of friendly, even if it sucks and is terrible, they're not going to like go out and, you know, trash you in the New York times. Right. And, and then you iterate on it and make it better and better and better until you're ready for opening night. And then you get going. So if it's good enough for musical theater, it's good enough for, uh, I know the tech startup world really doesn't like thinking of themselves as, uh, as related a proven to any model. other
0: industry, but it's, it's a proven model that, that yeah. works. Okay. Um, and last, last thing that I wanted to pull out, uh, was, you know, you are, you have achieved product product focus or product led marketing. Um, now yeah. if you go a little bit deeper into what constitutes the product, um, Talk to me about the focus on feature sets and roadmap in relation to uh, what your customers want versus if you have a VC, traditional VC backed roadmap that you're trying to achieve. Mm. And you mentioned it earlier, how that negatively impacts your customers and how you have customers that aren't happy with you. So walking through that dichotomy, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Get Abstract. Now, if you're trying to figure out where to get information from, where to learn, where to read, there's so much stuff out there. It's like information overload. What Get Abstract does is it finds, rates, and summarizes top business books, articles, and video talks into 10-minute abstracts to help people make better decisions in business, and their private lives. I know you don't have hours to kill, but you still want to learn. You still want to upskill. This is where Get Abstract really helps. Over 22,000 text and audio summaries in areas such as leadership, finance, innovation, health, and science, and many more. If you want to get to the meat of various text, articles, books, videos, go sign up for Get Abstract. You can get a free month for all Success Story Podcast listeners by visiting getab.li.com slash success that is get ab G-E-T-A-B dot l-i slash success so let's take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode true bill so let me ask you a question how often have you signed up for a free trial and then it converted into a paid subscription and you forgot to cancel it or how often have you just not been able to cancel something because the process to cancel that particular you know, monthly service is just horrible and painful, and they make you jump through hoops. Truebill is solving this for you. Truebill is letting you fight back against scammy subscription services. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions that you don't need, you don't want, or you simply forgot about. On average, people save roughly $720 per year with Truebill. And it's honestly because companies make subscriptions difficult to cancel. Truebill makes it incredibly simple. You just link your accounts to Truebill and they cancel everything unwanted with a single click. And if something doesn't cancel automatically, they actually have a concierge service that will follow up and cancel it for you so that you don't have to. Truebill has over 2 million active users and they saved people over 100 million dollars. I used it myself. I saved about 578 bucks, but that's just because I spent so much time in the past having to go back and cancel. I'm sure if I knew about them two, three years ago, it could have saved me like thousands of dollars by now. So stop letting CEOs and bad businesses get rich off you being unable or just forgetting to cancel. Don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today with Truebill at truebill.com slash success story. Go right now, Truebill.com slash success story. That's Truebill.com slash S-U-C-C-E-S-S-S-T-O-R-Y. It could save you thousands a year. That's Truebill.com slash success story. Take control of your subscriptions. Yeah.
1: Uh, so first off, I want to say this is not, a, it, it's not a universal that a, you know, sort of the, the classic venture hypergrowth growth model um, structure is. Always, absolutely negative for customers. It's just that the incentives will often create conflict, and sometimes that conflict can be healthy, and sometimes it can be really unhealthy. But essentially, what you have is, you know, let's say today, um, Sparktoro is serving primarily uh, marketers' agencies. Um, it is serving a lot of. You know, consultants and in-house marketers at at teams of small and mid-sized companies, primarily, a few enterprises here and there, but but not very many, right? And in a venture model, we might, you know, get together with our board of directors and look at the opportunity and say, hey, we're growing really well among this SMB set, but that's not where the dollars are flowing in the global economy. Like the, you know, because of the the, <laughs> the structures that we talked about. Most of the dollars, most of the revenue, is going to the very big companies, and so the question isn't how do we get ten thousand more SMBs on SparkToro. The question is how do we charge ten thousand times more to Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, you know, Deloitte, uh, you know, the, the a ton of big companies um, who are going to use SparkToro in the future. And so what we want to instead do is start to move up market go enterprise, build a sales team, um, make the product ideal for them. That doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to make compromises and do bad things for our SMB customer set. But you can see where the tension comes into play, right? The, The roadmap is essentially focused on how do we get to the next level of growth rather than how do we keep making these customers that we're already serving happier and happier? How do we make them more and more successful? And by making them more successful, you know, over the long term, we have confidence that SparkToro will be a better company for lots more people like them, and that they'll stick around longer, right, and that kind of stuff. This is the this is the big challenge, right? And I know that um, HubSpot, for example, had lots of conversations around this and had, I think, very healthy conflict around you know, do we serve existing customers? Do we go from serving marketers to serving salespeople, right? And You know, does that take our eye off the ball in terms of this? At my old company Moz, we had this discussion a bunch, Scott, and decided, made the absolute worst wrong decision, which was, hey, we need to move away from being just SEO and serve all these other marketing practices as well. You know, content marketers, social media marketers, email marketers, press and PR, uh, uh, public relations marketers, all that kind of stuff. So let's build a platform for all of these our own metaverse—I <laughs> think that's the new thing everybody calls it—and um, uh, and and that basically we did that at the worst possible time because SEO was growing so fast, and our competitors took advantage of the fact that we had taken our eye off the SEO ball, and we're like, "Hey, we're focused on this," and a lot of people moved from Moz to Ahrefs and sem Rush and 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 other competitors, uh, and and Moz lost its market leadership position as a result. Um, so, hey. It, You know, it's one of those things where it's like high risk, high reward. Um, I like the model right now of how do we serve the customers who are finding SparkToro valuable better and better every month? How do we iterate on that? You know, maybe we have some visionary ideas that are, you know, no one asked for this specific thing, but we think it's going to be really valuable to those people. And so we try and build that in addition to building the things that, that we know are being asked for, right? So the biggest thing that people are asking for right now is more language support. They want German and Spanish and French and Italian and you know, Japanese and all these other languages, right? In, in the product, we don't currently support those. So Casey's doing a bunch of work to support that. And then we have a visionary idea that maybe people will want to not only search for an audience, but also track it over time. And sort of see like, oh, okay, my audience is changing in these ways. They've started following these new podcasts. They've started using these new hashtags. They've started talking about these new topics. They've started uh, sharing this new content. We think that a lot of marketers will be interested in seeing that, but nobody asks us for it. Nobody's like, hey, I want to track my audience over time and like get graphs and data of what's changing. So that's a, you know, an intuition. It's it's a vision for where the product could go. Um, we're building both these things.
0: And, and last point on just some, some startup lessons or, or thoughts on startup culture. Um, and then I want to go into some, just some rapid fire to pull out some some insights from your career. How do we build, what, what are your final thoughts on building a, a more equitable uh, startup de facto culture versus what it is right now?
1: Yeah, so I I think there are uh, this is a really big question and a, and a tough answer. I know, but right, I
0: know it's something that you're like, passionate about. That's yeah, what I want to Passionate uh,
1: about. And, and, you know, there, there's also the the difficulty of like, all right, let's get the, the two white Americans, cis straight, you know, <laughs> um, able-bodied white guys together and, um and have them discuss this, these topics and that, you know, that alone has its problems. But um. I do think that that those of us who have benefited from historical inequity uh, have the lion's share obligation to help fix the problem, right? We, maybe we ourselves did not create the problem, although arguably, I think we we could say we probably have contributed to it. But we absolutely have to be the solution. And so, um my feeling is you can't do this without uh, recognition of the fact that, like, you you basically have two options um, in your belief structure, right? You can either look at the current state of, you know, generally the world at large, but but even just, like, focused in on um, startups and technology and marketing in the United States and then say, well, either it is the case that uh, almost all of the best and most talented, most qualified people uh, happen to be white men who look like us, right? And, and have like our profiles or there is uh bias in the system,
0: right? Like <laughs> there's definitely bias in the system. I think that's, it's, exactly. it's not really an, an argument, but yeah, I've even so, so to, uh, in order to, yeah. th- in
1: order to think the other thing, you have to be deeply misogynist and racist, right? You have to be like at your core, a, uh, have this horrific hatred of others and and a belief in the superiority of a of a very certain kind of person. Well, you just and follow the I, money, I right? Fundamentally. Where does the money
0: come from? And that that leads to to bias already. Yeah, so
1: so so then you start to ask yourself, right? Then the the next step is to find where that bias exists, and the, the answer is everywhere. And so you tackle piece by piece. Where are the structural biases existing, right? And it's. It's uh, access to education. It's access to money. It is uh, where and how you grew up and who you grew up with and around and who your friends were at school and you know what um, colleges you did or didn't get into and what you or your parents could or couldn't afford. And so fixing those things is part of our challenge. And then the other part of our challenge, I think, is to say... Um, let's start to recognize that talent is equally distributed, but opportunity is not. And when we realize that, what we, say, what we can say from there is we need to uh, understand that the bar of measurement that we use for people who have had every privilege and opportunity in their life cannot be the same bar that we use for people who have not had that. If you, if you started here and you stayed here and you get venture funding because, oh, hey, look, you're up here. <laughs> That's not nearly as impressive as if you started here and got here, right? That, that is you made some progress. But if you look at the background of technology founders uh, in the startup universe, you will see that almost, I, I think it's more than 90% come from backgrounds of top 10% wealth. Which yeah. is like, you know, if my parents owned uh, whatever gem mines, diamond mines in South Africa and, and gave me tens of millions of dollars off the backs of arguably a modern form of exploitative at the very least and potentially not that far off of slave labor maybe i too could
0: make rockets and but there's also a lot of well i was going to say there's a lot of yes yeah, so that's one 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 example but there's a lot of level there's levels to this shit too right like it's that that's that's one that's one extreme but there's a lot of wealth that comes and even then if you if you're brought up in that in that family that you have wealth from less uh less uh conflicting um uh you know jobs and whatnot say you just have from from regular everyday uh, owning brick and mortar shops, uh, parents, doctors, lawyers, whatever that yeah. may be, and you have wealth from that. I was just going the point was there's a lot of, a lot of people that come from if, wealth if you have, that don't I have. I mean,
1: just yeah. the, the, the right, the, I think there's a huge difference in the United States between like a, almost 50% of the population who, if they had a $4,000 or $5,000 expense, um, emergency expense next month,
0: I've heard this, that it'd be over,
1: right? Like they're financially, um, bankrupt, essentially, there's no way they could afford it. They would be deep in debt for decades to come through the, uh, you know, extractive and and exploitative payday loan industry and the, you know, nasty stuff around that, you know, one of my least favorite statistics, horrifying statistic is that if you are a woman in a domestic violence situation, your partner, spouse, whatever is, um, beating you and, you know, threatening you, and you need to get out of that situation, it costs, it costs that woman something like $750 on average to get herself out of that situation. And for those women who do, who invest that $750, almost all of them uh, in the U.S. go through the payday loans industry and they will pay over the course of the next three or four years uh, over four thousand dollars in interest um, wow. payments, and that that keeps them in poverty. That keeps them in bad situations. It is gross and disgusting. Um,
0: well, wow. I, I, I don't know. Just, I mean, I, it's I've just, never thought that. I've never thought of, thought of that particular stat. But that's that's uh, that's disturbing. I know that I know the stats that like if you have. You know, five cents in your pocket, you're richer than X percentage of the of the population of the U.S. Right? Like most people are living day to day in debt, but so yeah. just extrapolate on that, and it makes sense. Um,
1: yeah, but, but it's, it's, it's you know, so so there's there's horrible iniquity, and uh, I think the job of an investor, of an entrepreneur, of you know, you you when you're doing hiring, is to recognize that just because someone is up here and someone else is down here. Your job is to look at the trajectory, not the where they are. Like, well, this person graduated from a four year school that was very expensive and they got this kind of degree. So they must be qualified. More qualified than someone who went to community college and, you know, had to drop out, but has, you know, some skills and showed this grit and perseverance and has, you know, has this kind of a trajectory. I, I, I don't think so. You know, people talk you about like, oh, you work so hard. I, You know what? I have never, never in my life have I worked as hard as maintenance or janitorial staff. Not one day. And, and uh, you know, look how American society rewards me versus them. It's pretty, it's really weird.
0: Do you know anybody that, do you know any uh, VC groups, incubators, that you'd recommend people. I don't know. I'm putting you on the spot here. So if you don't have, but do you know any that are doing it right? <laughs> um in the venture world, there's there's not
1: a lot. I mean, I mentioned Overlooked Ventures, uh Backstage, which Geraldine and I are also yeah. investors in, you know, Arlen Hamilton um as the founder there, she you know, she she came from like homelessness herself, right? Living in a car. I I don't know a lot of venture investors who have a background like that, which is pretty awesome. Um and I think that there's probably a few others. You know, I, I would mention Village Capital, um, ClearBank. Uh, gosh, Indie VC was one, but unfortunately, they, they their fund shut down. Oh, Earnest, uh, Earnest Capital, I would check out. Tiny Seed, again, we're investors in that one. Um, but there are a few. And my hope is that more people will uh, think harder about this and think harder about what they want to fund versus, um, how they can avoid taxes. <laughs> and it's gotta, it's a, it's a hard thing to change, man. It's a really hard thing. It to is change.
0: a hard thing to change. I, I was, I, I spoke to, um, his name was, uh, Keenan, Keenan Beasley, if I'm not mistaken, it was a while back. I spoke to him and he was, uh, an, in, he was an investor, but he had opened up for underserved minority groups, uh, like, a, a an incubator and and he this is what he lives every single day, and uh I will try and find the name of this his incubator yeah, but yeah, basically cool. um basically he's focused on uh everything you mentioned, so all the the network the connections the the family you grow up with, those relations and it was something along the lines of like there has been it was some incredible stat it was like there's only been one investment in a black individual at a siege stage for over a million dollars in the history of the U.S. It was something like so insane that I like I couldn't believe it till he actually proved it. Like it yeah. was just unbelievable, and I I hope my stats are right. But if you if, any, if anybody wants to look him up, and uh, yeah, Keenan yeah. Beasley, he's the uh, he's done a couple things, but he uh, is focused on. And I had him on a while back. Now focused on everything that the brand you just spoke about and his venture is called venture noir and he has yeah, some really cool. shocking stats but uh venture he's a really fascinating yeah, yeah so a really um, interesting guy but I, I think
1: the you know the other thing that you have an obligation to do outside of whatever tech startup world outside of you know our our little universe is to in my opinion if you recognize this historical inequity you have an obligation to try and fix that And, uh, and that means doing it in your everyday life and in your civic life and in your voting and in your, uh, charitable contributions and in your, um, you you know, in your, in, in who you network with and how you help them. Um, so look at you, you know, every, everyone has their biases and their options around this stuff but it's it it's pretty hard to like break out of your you know cycle of oh well this is my friend group that's who i want to help i i don't i don't really think about you know how am i going to make friends in other communities and how am i going to get more people in my network who don't look like me and how in am i going to help them and in your company
0: higher into your company to? Than-
1: yeah. 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 And, you know, even outside of your company, right. Just like, yeah, yeah, no, no, of course, of course. Yeah. How am I going to, how am I going to build those relationships? Like, I, I think one of the, you know, one of the most disturbing and disgusting things to me is like, I think like something north of 60 or 65% of white Americans have, uh, no black person in their life who, whose like phone number they have or, um, you know that that they have any type of contact with apart from incidental they not a friend not a colleague not a relation right and and a big part of that obviously is like the white flight of the 50s and 60s where where white communities like in the us you know um intentionally excluded themselves from <laughs> anywhere where they would have uh diversity and and tried to maintain segregation through kind of economic and geographic patterns um, but Hey, you, you got to make an intentional effort to, to do this stuff. And I don't know, I'm, I realize I'm like throwing pebbles in the ocean here, but I'm going to no, keep but throwing. It's,
0: it, listen, man. Um, it's, it's all important to talk about this stuff. Um, and I think that the more it's talked about, the, the more that it's normalized to talk about this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And at, at least, and I th-
1: right. At least we can do that. At least we can be like oh, well, you know, I'm a startup founder and I have a reputation and blah, blah, blah. And I don't want to get criticized for ha- saying the wrong thing about race or saying the wrong thing about sexism or saying the wrong thing about, um, you know, uh, trans folks, LGBTQ plus folks. You know what? What? Well, You got to at least start to get comfortable with these conversations and and be willing to make some mistakes and apologize and be like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm still learning. I'm going to get there.
0: You know, know. I'm hoping that over the next uh, I think that the U.S. has never been more divided um, due to a a multitude of reasons. Um, Obviously, leadership and COVID did not help, but I'm hoping that (laughs) things get a little bit. (laughs) Scott, with the
1: understatement of
0: the (laughs) (laughs) century. No, I've never seen I actually I you don't know this about me. I'm actually Canadian and and one thing that still shocks me is is the is Oh the no, vibe. I can tell
1: from the eyebrow. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, "Is
0: that?" A, I was like, "Is that a thing?" <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I just came you, up I, with that. You, you 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 were so slick with that. That was all I, you almost convinced me for a second. Um <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so uh, no, I just I've never seen such polarization. Um, yeah, yeah. We, we have left yeah. and right groups, obviously, as well, but you don't see the same sure. level of polarization, and that's something that is very, very saddening. And it permeates much more than just startups, but that's a whole other. It's a whole other podcast, but yeah, um, man.
1: it's. Yeah. I mean, that stuff is intense. But you know, it, yeah. it has negative knock-on effects for all of us, right? If you if yeah. you think if you think that talent is equally distributed and opportunity is not then when you imagine the the sort of world as it is today and you look at all of the option opportunities that have been missed by the investment class by by the startup world by hiring you know in and out of tech you think to yourself oh my god we could have had twice three times as many amazing companies we could have had way more performance we could have had you know, um, not just a more equitable, equitable world, but a better world for all of us because we were inclusive and equitable, because we recognize talent from across the spectrum. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that the uh, the reason that that Geraldine and I put money into funds that specifically serve underserved, underrepresented, historically overlooked folks is is Not exclusively because we are trying to make the world a more equitable place. It is also because I am confident, absolutely 100% confident that those that that talent is equal or better than the talent than the best talent that, you know, current funds are finding.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's funded right now. Um, yeah. Okay. Let's do let's do some rapid fire. That was a really good discussion, man. I, oh, I nice. don't yeah. uh, I don't know if you I don't know if you planned out to go down that route, but I'm I'm glad we did. That was great. Um, <laughs> before we before we do rapid fire, uh, where is the best place for people to go check out you right now? Where do you want to send oh. people? Website, social, yeah. all of that.
1: Uh, let's see. I uh, yeah. So if you are interested in giving Spark Toro a spin seeing what we're up to there, getting our funding docs, checking out how we're building things different and using the like zebras versus unicorns mentality. Uh, All that's at sparktoro.com. You can also create a free account and play around with the product. Um, And then if you are interested in following me and hearing all my wackadoodle views on all this stuff, uh, best place is Twitter where I'm at Randfish.
0: Okay, perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, Let's go into it. I just want to ask... The, normally, I don't ask this one rapid fire question, but I need to because you're, you're Rand Fishkin. So, what is the single most important uh, marketing concept that you believe has stayed with, uh, that is relevant to marketers over the course of your entire career?
1: Ooh, um, things that are more measurable will get more investment and therefore are more competitive and therefore are less likely to provide an advantage. So paid search, uh, paid social, um, display advertising, basically what's called performance marketing, hyper measurable. Almost everyone puts a bunch of money into it. Almost no one can get a competitive advantage out of it versus a lot of organic channels especially things like press and PR and and influence marketing and going on people's podcasts and speaking at events, almost impossible to measure. Therefore, very easy to build a competitive advantage.
0: That's great. That's 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 something that's a whole other spin on where to focus on marketing.
1: I mean, what do you want? Right. Do you want to be able to prove to your team, to yourself, to your investors that your dollars are returning you you know, some amount of money for every investment? Or do you want the best performance?
0: <laughs> it's always the best performance. It's always. Yeah, I the mean, best I, performance.
1: I personally am willing to not have it be proven to me that my marketing dollars are working in exchange for a competitive advantage. And almost no one's willing to
0: do that, which is awesome for me because it makes all those channels way easier. I love it. Great. Amazing. Um, okay. One, uh, the largest challenge you've had in your personal or professional life What was it and how did you overcome it? I think
1: the biggest professional challenge for me was separating my personal identity from the identity of my previous company, Moz, and just just, um, believing that I could be someone, anyone, anything, worth anything outside of how well or poorly that company did. That was the biggest challenge I think I think I'm probably there today but I um, it was like a
0: 20 year slog man um that's something that I think a lot of people have trouble with regardless even if they're not yeah. building a company their their own self-worth is tied to their career yes separ- i mean i think this is particularly true for
1: um, for men that like, you know, the, the world sort of tells you that you're supposed to be valued based on what you do professionally and how much you earn and what field you're in and how it's going. Um, breaking out of that is real hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Um. Okay. So what would be one lesson that you would tell your 20 year old self?
1: <laughs> oh God, only one <laughs>
0: Only one. You got to pick. This is the, it's supposed to be the first thing, first thing that comes to mind. Okay. Rapid
1: fire answer. Hey, 20 year old Rand, here's this book, Lost and Founder. Just read that. You'll be good. (laughs) 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 I mean, I basically wrote it as here's a bunch of advice to young me so that I don't make all the same mistakes. And you know, a lot of those are in terms of like conceptualizing the business differently and how to fund it and how to structure it and how to think about being able to grow and, and being able to be profitable and, um, long-term yeah. growth versus short-term hacks, all that.
0: Good. Um, what would be... Uh, so you've had lots of mentors in your life. Who was one person that was very impactful? What did they teach you? Ooh,
1: man. I mean, there have been... Yeah, so many wonderful folks. I... Um, man. Uh, so a, a great friend of mine out in Philadelphia is Will Reynolds. He runs uh, the agency, See Interactive. I don't know if you've had him on the show. If you haven't, you should. Uh, I'm happy to make an intro, but... Um, Will has taught me uh, a ton, but, but a, a huge part of what he has taught me is that the, um, the confidence in yourself and the um, confidence in what you know you want to do with your life does not have to conflate to what anyone else wants or expects from you. Uh, that's a pretty, that's a pretty hard lesson for me because I'm a people pleaser. I want to make everyone like me. I I have always wanted to be that. When my parents asked me as a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? I told them I wanted to be a dog because everybody always loves dogs and people are sweet to dogs and they pet them and they're never mean to them. And so, uh, breaking out of, I want to be a dog when I grow up, um, has been really hard. And, And Will has been the biggest impact for me on that front.
0: Amazing. Um, what would be one uh, book or podcast besides your own that you recommend people go check out?
1: Oh, man, there's so many good books right now. Let's see. I just got, I just started reading Amanda Russell's uh, Influencer Code. That's look at, look I at how I have it conveniently just set up. Yeah, right. right?
0: And, uh, <laughs> and
1: that has been a great start. I, okay. I read uh, Ramley John's product-led onboarding which, you know, it's hyper tactical, but I read it. I got maybe halfway through the book and I was like, this is so great. I just emailed him immediately and was like, hey, man, can I hire you? <laughs> like, I need you to do this for us. This is freaking phenomenal. Anyway, he's working with us right now. So that's amazing. You know, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if, you, if you're looking for uh, for one of those. Oh, this is how much I like that book. I have two copies. Look, look at me. I'm basically a Ramley John Shill. That is me. No, I, um, yeah, uh, huge fan of that book.
0: Amazing. Um, And then uh, last question, what does success mean to you? It's so different than what it used to mean. So, so different. Um,
1: Success to me means that I make the world kinder and more equitable uh, every day, at least a little bit
0: amazing that's all i got man that's it (laughs) love it